0: Is it wrong to give someone a gift to encourage them to get vaccinated? Why do children from poorer homes seem to struggle more in school? And why would a person with not enough money to eat choose to buy a television instead of more food? In 2019, Esther Duflo became the youngest ever winner of the Nobel Prize in Economics by asking these simplest of questions. And she got some very surprising answers just by looking at the choices made by poor people. I'm Ling Xueling, executive producer and journalist with CNA, and this is In Conversation with Esther Duflo. Professor Esther Duflo, welcome to In Conversation. Thank you. Why does a man who doesn't have enough to eat buy a TV instead of more food? because there is much more to life than
1: just food of course food is important but when people have a life that's very difficult and to some extent very boring because there is not too much work this man that i met who didn't have enough to eat he lived in rural morocco he didn't have that much work and you do need some entertainment so he explained to me tv is more important than food
0: the interesting thing i noticed was you said that it's not just about getting more calories These studies that you have done show that when the person has a bit more money, they don't necessarily just rush out and buy the very same food again.
1: Exactly. So what we see roughly is if someone becomes 10% richer, they will spend about 7% more money on food, and this 7% more money will be shared about half-half between more calories and better quality food. So in total, for a 10% increase in your income, you have only a 3% increase in your calories. And that's because it gets super boring to eat always the same thing. You would know that in Singapore, where food is so delicious, you would not want to eat the same thing all the time. So it's very important for people to diversify. It's part of the joy of life.
0: So that again, as you said, was a really fascinating thing of that. Poor people want to have nice tasting, yummy food too. And there's nothing terrible or wrong about that. It's part of, as you say, the joy of life. But it may not always be good food for them in the sense it's not necessarily nutritious food, is it, that we choose?
1: Not necessarily, because of course, uh, the human being has a craving for more fat and more sugar. But again, we are not robots. So if we were robots, we could, you know, program ourselves to eat the most nutritious food for the littlest money that would roughly involve banana and eggs. But it might not be very fun, or not fun at all, to eat banana and eggs all the
0: time. Does it mean then that we shouldn't give them money, but we should instead, as government programs, we should be giving them the food that is nutritious? Actually, it means
1: the opposite, almost. There have been many studies conducted comparing giving money and giving food. Giving money produced the same increase in calories consumed as well as the nutritiousness of the meal, but it is much cheaper and much, much easier to organize. So in most contexts, absent situation where finding food is just very, very hard, in which case by procuring food, you're also procuring a service. It is actually much better, much easier, much faster to give cash
0: to people. So let them decide, in fact.
1: Yes, so first of all, because that's right. You know, you're going to help people. You shouldn't consider them to be completely irresponsible and incapable of deciding for themselves. So I think that's the right thing to do. Secondly is they are going to decide anyways. You cannot stop them from deciding because there is always the possibility. If I give you rice, you say, fine, I'm going to buy a little less rice by myself since you gave me some, and I'm going to use the money that is left to buy the meat that I crave. So in any case, people will decide. So why not then give them the money, which is much easier to organize, has less corruption, has less procurement problem and therefore make more resources available for everyone and be, you know, a little bit trusting, let people do what is right for themselves.
0: If we look at the stereotype you mentioned as well, that poor people can be also stereotyped into being thought of as being foolish. So do poor people make more foolish decisions than rich people? In
1: many cases, poor people make a much more reasonable decision than rich people, in particular for anything having to do with the management of money Uh, Rich people tend to make a lot of errors that are easy to document because they don't care so much. So an example is that if I tell you, so here is this dress, it costs $200. You can get it for $10 less. If you go to the other end of town, or you can just get it for the full price here. People will typically get the dress here. But if I tell you here is a pen, it costs $20. But if you go to the other end of town, you can get it for $10 then most people for the pen will feel that they are going to go to the other end of town because they think that proportionally it's a huge gain since they get it for half price at the other end of town. What they forget is that it really doesn't make a difference. It's $10 either way, and you should compare $10 with the cost of your travel. Now, if you ask this problem to rich people, they get it uh, wrong. If you ask this problem to poor people, they get it right because they are making the right calculation. So in general, the poor are actually quite sensible in how they are thinking about money. The problem is thinking about money uses so much boundaries and available space in the life of the poor, precisely because they are so keen on getting it right that it takes away some of the energy and ability to think about other things. It's like we have a limited capacity to worry and to think about issues. So if you're always thinking about, will I have enough money to feed my kids? Will I be able to finish the month and so on? Then it's harder to think about other things like, should I get the kids vaccinated? What do I need to get organized for them to succeed in school and so on and so forth?
0: You know, I don't have to think about whether or not my water is clean. I just switch on the tap and I know it's clean. So that's taken away one worry for me which allows me to think of maybe something else about whether I should read this book written by this Nobel Prize winning author and would that be good for my, you know, work as a journalist.
1: Precisely, they have to think about whether the water is clean, they have to think about whether the rain will fall and the harvest will work, they have to think about whether they'll manage the school fee for the children and so on and so forth. And then that takes on so much brain space that you don't have the luxury of having this deeper thought that makes life also worth living.
0: Experts agree that a good quality public education helps tackle inequality in rich and poor countries. But according to a report by UNICEF, over 600 million children worldwide can't effectively read or do basic maths even though two thirds of them are in school. So why do children from poorer backgrounds seem to struggle in school? Let's look at another thing, and that was you've also done a lot of studies on education. So why is it that some poor children go to school but don't seem to learn much?
1: It is not that the children are lazy. It is not that they are incapable to learn. It is not that the teachers are not qualified. So what is it? And I think what it is in a lot of countries is that the curricula have been designed during the colonial period in order to create a very small elite of educated local populations to help out the colonial powers. Then when the colonial powers left, they left behind that curriculum that was designed for an elite. The school system opened, many people got into school, but this curriculum turned out to be completely inadapted. And even as in richer countries we've adjusted our curriculum, they haven't really adjusted in places like India or Kenya or Tanzania or Uganda or Ghana. They are completely out of sync with the population who is in school. So the result is that a few kids do very, very well. And everyone else is completely lost, usually from quite early in the school system, and do not even get the basic skills.
0: What about people who say, well, maybe that's okay. Maybe you just have an elite group. You know, the clever kids can do well, and they will somehow lift the whole country and lift all the rest of us up with them.
1: So that's not okay,
0: because getting the basic skills through
1: schools helps children and as they become adults in their entire life. If you know how to read and you know how to write and you know how to do basic calculation, then your entire life gets a little easier to organize. For example, we conducted a study in Ghana where we were able to pay the secondary school fee for a randomly selected set of kids. And we followed these children as they become young adults and had children of their own. And when you look at the children of those children, their own cognitive skills are more developed if their parents got the scholarship, they're also more likely to simply have survived. So education at this basic level has impacts that have ramifications in the entire life and societies. So it is really critical that all of those kids who are today going to school, the parents have been convinced, the kids themselves have been convinced, are provided with a good fundamental education. And I think this is something that in Singapore, there is a lot of conviction of. I know, for example, that in Singapore math, the principle is nobody should be left behind. Everybody can learn the program. And that's a great attitude, but that's not the attitude that you see in a lot of developing countries today.
0: And it's very
1: sad because it's very easy to fix.
0: What about the caricature that we have of poor kids having to help their parents in the farm? And that's why they don't go to school. So is that actually true?
1: No, it's not true. Most parents really, really want their kids to go to school and not to help them in the field. And in fact, when kids drop out, they don't typically really help that much. Sometimes the parents are not even aware that they are skipping school.
0: Even in a poor country?
1: Even in poor countries. At this point, it is really extraordinarily rare that kids cannot attend because they have to work.
0: Okay, so let's go back to then the the lazy kid stereotype. Is that the case? Are the children from families that aren't so wealthy lazy? They don't want to go to school. They're not interested in learning.
1: I don't think they are lazy at all, but it is often the kids that they don't want to go to school. And the reason why they don't want to go to school is school is extraordinarily boring. You're lost because nobody pays attention to you. Something that's being taught on the board is something that's way far beyond what you can comprehend. If the school system is designed to teach a small elite and make everybody else understand that they are stupid, that there is a front of the class and the back of the class and the back of the class is not interested, then of course going to school is a terrible experience.
0: Scientists say that vaccines not only save lives, they also reduce sudden heavy medical expenses, something which can push an already struggling family into really terrible poverty. But sadly, Millions of children are still not getting life-saving vaccines, with 60% of these kids living in just 10 countries. Why do some children and even old people not get vaccinated? Reasons are complicated. In part, it may be lack of availability of vaccines, but sometimes it is also because of other stumbling blocks. So is it wrong to give someone a gift to encourage them to get vaccinated? another thing that i've seen that you've done experiments on is giving people a gift so that they'll be vaccinated is it wrong to do that that we're being patronizing to the poor where we say hey we give you a gift so that you'll get vaccinated
1: no it's not wrong to do that why would it be wrong the benefit of being vaccinated is not just for you but it's for others around you and therefore it is Reasonable that we should just tell you to do it. Whatever are your personal beliefs, you still need to do it. The second reason is that vaccination is difficult for us human beings, poor and rich, because it is never very urgent. It is something that it's not fixing a disease you already have. It is preventive something to happen in the future. And we are, as human beings, really liable to procrastinate and therefore not do today, what can possibly be put back to the next day. What you do by giving a small gift in particular, if it's a gift of food, for example, lentils, something that people need immediately, or we did a version of this program with cell phone minutes, which is also something that is of immediate use, is that you're saying, okay, there isn't a cost, I need to do it now, but I'm getting something now. It's not going to convince you if you don't want to do it for ideological reason, because it's very small gifts. So it doesn't change your view about vaccination fundamentally. But if you're someone, as many people in developing countries, who really thinks that, yes, it's good to get vaccinated and should get it for my children, then it's going to encourage you to do it today rather than to wait and then wait and then wait. And that's why I think it's absolutely moral to do this.
0: You found in your studies that people were actually going to a private doctor whom they had to pay rather than going to a public doctor or clinic that was for free. Why that strange choice? And these were poor people.
1: Yes, and not only that, but they often go to a private doctor that is not qualified, that has not studied to be a doctor. So they forego the public doctor that is free and qualified in favor of a private doctor that is expensive and not qualified.
0: Isn't that totally illogical?
1: It might seem, but it's not, because the problem is the behavior of the public doctor. Often they will arrive, and the public doctor will spend one or two minutes with them, not carrying out any exam, and finally not diagnose what they have. So when you compare not what doctors know, but what they do in the clinic, a set of excellent studies that was uh, carried out by Gisnoot Das, which show that the public doctor, even though they are more qualified, spend so little time with people that they misdiagnose them worse than these unqualified doctors so if you're going to walk a few kilometers to go to the public clinic to be misdiagnosed and treated very poorly and without respect then why would you do that people would rather go locally they might still be misdiagnosed but they have a sense that someone is taking care of them
0: I noticed that you've also done a lot of work on let's say even simple things like clean water and adding chlorine to water to make it clean. And that would reduce the numbers of people who have diarrhea and all the accompanying other diseases in in many poor countries. Should you give people free chlorine to put into their water in developing countries or should you make them pay?
1: But certainly you should do it for free. The reason is similar to the idea of giving people small gifts to get vaccinated. It's something you need to do every time, every day, that's going to make you feel better. It's going to avoid some disease that you don't have yet. And preventive medicine is always much harder than treating for people to understand and to remember to do all the time and all the time. There have been several studies showing that as soon as you ask people to pay a little bit for chlorine, they don't do it. And therefore, you you lose a lot of lives that didn't need to be lost. So the idea on the contrary is that it not only should be free, but it should be as easy as possible.
0: We in Asia tend to think that if someone doesn't pay for something, they won't value it. So is that what you've seen in your studies?
1: No. Uh, This is actually something that, not just you in Asia, but (laughs) in general, we tend to have this idea that you need to pay for something to value it, And it could be true, but it happens to be that there are many studies that have been carried out that shows that, in fact, it doesn't appear to be true. The most well-known of those is work by Pascaline Dupin on pet nets. Uh, Pet nets are essential to prevent malaria, uh, since malaria is transmitted by mosquitoes who are mainly biting during the night. So everybody agrees that what's really important is to distribute as many bad nets as possible and have people use them. But there was a debate precisely on this point, which is should you ask people to pay a little bit, not because you don't want to give them for free, but because if they pay, they will value it more. Therefore, they will use more. So Pascaline Dupin ran a series of studies where uh, the nets were either given for free or where people had to pay something. And what she found is two very important things. First of all, is the moment people have to pay, they don't get them a little bit like with the chlorine in the water, which is people will not pay for bed nets. The second thing, however, if, if they get one for free, they use it. They are just as likely to use it when they got it for free as if they had to pay for it and moreover, if they get one for free. If you come back a few months later with the opportunity to get a second one, but to pay a little bit for it, the people who already have one are more likely to buy it than the people who don't have one because they didn't get an option before. So you don't get used to the handouts. You get used to the nets. in fact.
0: If there is one thing that you'd like to say to a rich person who says the poor will always be with us, you just have to live with it. That's just how it is.
1: Well, it's true. I hope it is true in some ways because we should as human species should always be concerned for whoever is the poorest person in society. And there, we've made so much progress in the last 30 years. Between 1990 and the COVID pandemic, infant mortality was divided by two. Maternal mortality was divided by two. Almost all the children are now attending school. Death from HIV went down dramatically. The number of people living under $1.90 a day, which is the absolute level of poverty, was also divided by two. So it shows that there is tremendous progress that had been made. Now, this was a little bit undone by the COVID pandemic, followed by the economic crisis that immediately followed on its heel. So there is work to do, but we see that it's definitely possible. And developing countries' governments are doing their share. People in developing countries themselves, the citizens, are doing their share. We as rich people should do our share by showing empathy, by showing understanding, and to the extent we can contribute by helping.
0: Prof Duflo, thank you very much for being on In Conversation.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was
0: wonderful. You've been listening to a podcast version of a television interview with Esther Duflo who is the youngest ever winner of the Nobel Prize in Economics. This interview is part of In Conversation, CNA's longest-running weekly interview show. When in season, In Conversation airs every Wednesday at 9pm Singapore time on Mediacorp CNA. You can also catch us online at cna.asia or on YouTube. I'm executive producer Ling Xueling, and thank you for listening.